This is the Magic Word Podcast.com. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the Magic Word Podcast.com. This week's episode is uh, being produced and recorded here in my new recording studio in Georgetown, Texas. Uh, after uh, after the uh, Magic Live convention, actually after the SAM convention, the Abbott's convention, the Magic Live, I got back and my house had been packed up and uh, by the, my movers. Uh, so that was being done while I was away. And then the moving van came the next day, took me to Georgetown, which is, by the way, just a suburb north of Austin, Texas. So I'm still a Texas resident. I've just got a new studio. And so right now my house is full of boxes and probably will be for a long time to come. I've got just a ton of stuff, quite literally, of things to go through here and try and decide what to keep and what to get rid of. I'm downsizing since my wife had passed a few years ago. I'm just wanting a much smaller home, uh, but that means I had accumulated a lot of stuff having lived in that same residence there in Houston for 25 years and now trying to squeeze that into a, a, a domicile, which is about a third the size of what my other house was. So anyhow, I'm going to be having a lot of decisions to make as far as where stuff can go. And uh, I know that some of my magic stuff or much of my magic stuff, including a lot of my library and posters and things like that, you might see soon on the Magic Surplus Exchange or some other people who have already reached out to me that said they wanted uh, some select things. But anyhow, that's, that's what's going on in my life then right now. Uh, my voice might sound a little bit different. I'm just also on the back end of a little bit of a head cold uh, in which I've been pretty congested. And so it kind of has affected my voice a little bit here too. So I apologize for that. This has really been just a uh, an amazing month that I've gone through, and I've just got a couple weeks before I head back out on the road again, which I'm going to be heading to Germany. As I had said earlier in a podcast, I'm going to be going to Oktoberfest. And while I was at Magic Live, I ran into a couple of friends, including Yui Spirlik, who had set me up for a lecture there in Munich sometime while I am there. And so uh, some details will be coming up on that. If any of the rest of you who live in Germany uh, are interested in uh, getting together, let me know where you live and some uh, information about how to get to you from where I will be. I'm going to be in Munich for about 10 days uh, from the 16th through the 24th, I believe, roughly, something like that, I guess. Uh, so that's less than a little more of the week. Anywho, uh, that's what's kind of going on. And I'm going to get a rental car and just spend three days at the Hofbrau, or Hofbrau Fest, at the Oktoberfest, and then going to be going out exploring a little bit in uh, Germany uh, beyond that. I think I may be going up to Berlin. Uh, I met a couple of uh, people, Freddie Roots had invited me to come up and visit the uh, German Magic Circle up there. Anyhow, a lot of stuff going on uh, here with my life then right now, and I uh, don't want to impede the movement forward to introducing you to this week's speaker. It's been someone who has been a longtime friend, and also this has actually been in the can, so to speak, for quite a while, too. Uh, while I was working at the Magic Castle last March, there were a few conversations that I had, uh, one of which was with Jamie and Swiss, which you'll be hearing here today in this episode. I've delayed that only because there have been so many things that have come up between then and now, including all the conventions and my travel and some other conversations that I had that were in the can prior to the ones I had with Jamie. So anyhow, that's why this has been a little bit delayed. This is really a very important one, as are all of our conversations. I hope that you will enjoy going back in the archives and enjoying those as well. But in particular, Jamie has just a lot of wisdom to share with us here this week. 
I would say that our guest this week needs no introduction because if you have been in magic for any period of time at all, you either have known or have met or have read something about Jamie and Swiss. He has been a consultant to Penn & Teller. He's been a consultant and an expert on several television and movie documentaries. He is a regular performer. He used to be a co-producer with Monday Night Magic in New York, lives in San Diego now, and is a regular performer at the Magic Castle, and is someone who has just been everywhere, on the cover of Genie Magazine, and and you perhaps again have seen him or heard him. That's why I say he really needs no introduction, so let me just get right into it. Please welcome my guest this week, my good friend and yours, Mr. Jamie Ian Swiss, here on The Magic Word. Today gives me great pleasure, as it does every week when I uh, have the pleasure of talking with other friends then as well, someone that I, I rarely get a chance to chat with because I live in the middle of the nation and Jamie is bi-coastal. Uh, Jamie is either on the East Coast or the West Coast, and I thought he was still out in New York City, but uh, much to my surprise, apparently he'd been moved to San Diego a few years ago. Might talk about that again a little bit later. But our guest today is someone who uh, really needs no introduction to most of the world, if you read at all, because he has been a reviewer for Genie Magazine for a number of years, has written uh, six books, has a literary fellowship from the Academy of Magical Arts, has been consulting for Penn & Teller, has also been on every major television network television show like the Today Show and and others for multiple times, someone who is highly respected, highly regarded, and I expect was probably a good friend of Ricky Jay's. Uh, No, I'm not a great friend. Okay, I didn't know if you knew Ricky so very well at all, but the reason is because I would just was watching him perform here at the Magic Castle, and I thought he had a little bit of Ricky Jay in your, his delivery, a little bit. But anyhow, I want to introduce you then, if you to my friend who is going to be uh, our guest for today. Please welcome Jamie in Swiss. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, we've chatted a couple times when we've yeah, been like we've at Magic conventions, at conventions, snippets yeah. here and there. But Ricky was not somebody who was in your sphere, I guess. No, uh, Ricky and I had. Um, such extremely similar interests. Yes, that's what that, I thought. Uh, we didn't really have anything to do with one another. <laughs> that's interesting because you think just the opposite because you would you kind of be then uh, closer. That's why I thought you had some similar interests in things. So, kind of certainly the similar interests. I wouldn't say it was influenced on my performance at all, but but uh, as far as that goes, but uh, similar, certainly similar interests being sleight of hand artists, yeah. being particularly focused on card magic, being uh, you know both staging close-up and theater performers, being of the Vernon School, and being of course academics and historians in the field. So yes, right. We 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 shared all those things, but we crossed paths occasionally at the um, L.A. History Conference. That was about know, it for many years, yeah. but that was about it. Well, speaking of the East Coast, and you said the, being a student really of Vernon, I always think of East Coast West Coast of East Coast being more of Slidini School or Marlowe, perhaps. Well, you know, that's but, not really. Yeah, that's not really. That's not really the case. I mean, I was influenced by Vernon very early on because, you know, one of the first really serious books of sleight of hand magic uh, for me was uh, The Stars of Magic. And The Stars of Mm -hmm. Magic is very much informed by Vernon and Vernon's work. Mm-hmm. And, and then, those around him, like Charlie yeah, Miller and others, exactly. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the new, you know, the New Jennings. York card stars, yeah. 
and uh, then subsequently the Vernon Book of Magic. And so, you know, and I literally, in the, in the Vernon Book of Magic, I, I reread, the, was it chapter two, the Vernon Touch? You know, I, I read that chapter over and over, a hundred times would be a, would be a conservative estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vernon, so Vernon was a tremendous influence on me at a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Having never met him. Long before I ever met him. Yeah. Long before I ever met him. And uh, I met him finally and attended a lecture of his when he came out east in 76, I think it was, for the SAM. Um, and we met briefly and I stayed up all night for this wonderful late night lecture he ran. But we really didn't get to know each other at all until I started to perform at the castle, which mm-hmm. was 87. Um, it was a little before that, actually. I was starting to come to the castle regularly as of maybe 85 or so. And so I got to know Vernon when he was... Um, it, it's funny, I had to look back years later because I thought... I could have sworn he was a decade older. And then when I actually look, sat down to write about Vernon... Mm-hmm. I realized that really when I knew him was when he was from about 88 to his early 90s. Mm-hmm. But it didn't seem that way to me, though. He's he pretty was, sharp. He was complete, other than the deafness, you know, his, yeah. develop, his uh, d- developing deafness, he was completely sharp. And by that time in my life, I had been really completely formulated as a Vernon kind of guy. Acolyte, yeah. Acolyte. Um, so getting to know him later on, although we had the occasional session and talk magic, but really it was the icing on the cake at that point just to get to know him a bit as a as a person, person as yeah. a unique, he was an utterly unique individual. Michael Skinner once said to me, he said, for everything I learned about magic from Vernon, what I really learned was about life and how to live. Hmm. And um, so, and then subsequently after... Uh, I guess around that period or a little later when I got to know Johnny Thompson. And then by that time, I was already a working magician and I was in my 30s. And yet, Johnny just sort of elevated my whole understanding of Vernon and hmm. and kind of redid, polished, revisited and polished and honed my understanding of the Vernon school. So Thompson had a huge influence on me. He really was really, as Levent said, he was our last mentor. Um, but a lot of the impact that John had on me was to be able, I could ask him these questions. He knew the answers firsthand. Yeah, right. You know, uh, the first serious question I ever asked him was a Vernon question about a Vernon trick and he it, that I had wondered about for decades, and he instantly gave me the answer. So um, That wasn't the trick that can't be explained, was it? No, it was not. Okay. No, it was it had to do with the travelers <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and a slight. Okay. So I, now this is not to say, I, I, yes, I had the great privilege, and I didn't know how lucky I was at the time. And the older I get, the more I, grateful <laughs> I am. But I grew up in the New York milieu i grew up at tannins i grew mm-hmm. up going to tannins by the time i was i started magic when i was seven or eight my so dad you went to kutchner's and all that uh, back then and i was i was at the, the jubilee you know jubilee. year after year and i and then the three years they took a break and they did the magic on broadway i was there all three years mm-hmm. copperfield and i one of the very often talk about the, those shows we were both at those shows yeah and he was called up on stage uh at one of those shows by al Coran. Um, wow. So, you know, and now he has Al's kit. We had a great conversation about that the, the day that 
David and I were talking about that. So anyway, I, grew- I was with you when we went uh, through the museum. Oh, uh, well, yeah, you and one of the times. Yeah, one, well, one of the times. Yeah, uh, with, with Paul Gertner and uh, oh yes, uh, that Nick was Lewin the week of the of the Thompsonian Memorial. Memorial. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it was just amazing. And I, I remember the tears in your eyes when they when they. Uh, oh, and, and the that was what. See, uh, that was the thing. So you were there and you saw it. Yeah, David. You know, word had started to leak out yeah. at that point that David had built this uh, reconstruction of the Tannen mm-hmm. store that we grew up in, yeah. uh, near Times Square by Bryant Park. And, um, you know, I had heard rumors of it. I, I, I had the mm-hmm. general idea, but he had also reorganized the tour by then. That was my first time back to the back to the collection since he had done this heavy renovation. Right. Um, and, you know, at this particular moment in the tour when he he starts by doing this wonderful thing about the buying some magic from a demonstrator at Macy's when he was a when he was a boy. And then you don't realize you're already standing in the space, but it's all blacked out. Right. And then suddenly the lights he Very talks theatrical. about tannins and he yeah. lights the lights come up and now you're standing in tannins. And I completely spontaneously burst into tears there was no and i and i kind of i looked up when i kind of woke up out of my my dreamlike state dreamlike state is good you know there was you know david looked just just with his arms crossed just like waiting you know like had been waiting looking at me smiling saying we knew that was going to happen we were just waiting for it and it's just this amazing thing he said that's why that i made this is for people to appreciate like exactly and so i grew up in that in that milieu and i grew and that means i grew up that on saturday afternoon you know i started going to the store on my own by the time i was about 11 and that was Saturdays, you know. That was my Saturdays, Saturdays more often than not. Yeah. Then later on, because the store used to be open late on Thursday evenings. For Did you take the subway week. downtown? Yeah, or? I took okay. a subway, and I lived out in Sheepshead Bay. It was an hour to get there. Okay. And um, Just hanging out, and people you, who were coming in. Just hanging out. And I was a very, very shy, introverted, uh-huh. only child kid. Uh-huh. I've since outgrown that phase. But, a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, I would be hanging around the store very meekly, very quietly, not really engaging with a lot of people but just watching attentive mm-hmm. attentively standing back and this is you know every week it was harry lorraine and frank garcia and but not in the same ed, room at ed, the same time yeah well <laughs> and ed michelle and you know and goshman and slidini and these are all the people i grew up around right. and right. seeing them more times than i could count and going to the jubilee every year mm-hmm. and oh and, and maybe almost more importantly than almost any of them Although it's hard to say. I mean, gosh, both Goshman and Sidini are really at the peak, and they were huge influences and yeah. inspirations. But also right there with them was Derek Dingle. And Dingle was a huge influence on me. It had a really? huge impact on me. He's very clever. And I've written about uh, Derek a number of times. And uh, so, I, you know, the, as I say, the older I get, the more grateful I am of the, of what I was exposed to, just what I was exposed to. And how I was taught magic, you know, I got, Tannins was a publisher in those days. And among other things, they published a Tarbell course in magic. Well, as publishers, they would also always get seconds, you know, damaged Mm -hmm. copies, Mm -hmm. things that didn't run right or whatever. They could sell cheap Well, rather than than pulp them, Mm -hmm. they kept a little group of little shelves in the back with the seconds that they would sell cheap to people who probably weren't, you know, kids like me who couldn't yeah, afford the, right. the less price anyway. So right. it was a win-win situation. And the first time 
that Lou took me back behind the counter. I mean, that was, you know, awe-inspiring. Yeah. And he said, here, look these over, you know, and that became a regular thing. So my copies of of Tarbell. Harry Lorraine's Close-Up Card Magic uh-huh. and the first four or five volumes of my Tarbell are all damaged in some way or <laughs> missing pages. Okay. There's pages in Tarbell I never read, <laughs> even though I read everything cover to cover. Uh-huh. But look at the opportunity. I was a young kid, and I got sure. you know raised the right way. Right. And and Lou also, who was a phenomenal demonstrator, absolutely fantastic, taught me my first sleight of hand, taught me sponge ball magic, taught me dice stacking, taught me the chop cup, the, the Don Allen chop cup. This is all when I'm like 12, 13, 14. Wow, and, what experience. You know, and so... Um, you know, but the but, but the real thing that Lou taught me, without ever saying a word about it, and again, didn't realize it till years later, was, you know, on Saturday the store would be full. It would be like a who's who, and if somebody was in town to be on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday, mm-hmm. they were in the store on Saturday hanging around. That's how I met Al Coran, and so. But Lou, you know, when I put down my allowance money, I put down my dollar or two dollars for mm-hmm. a trick or something. Man, he would take me over to the corner of the store, far away from prying eyes. Didn't mean, didn't matter if it was a, Full. a, 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 a you know, a thousand dollar illusion or a two dollar pocket trick. Didn't matter. Yeah. Didn't matter who it was who was standing there. They all got chased away, and in in that quiet corner, he bestowed the secret upon me. And what that taught me was a kind of respect, I realized later. Mm -hmm. It just taught me respect for what I was doing, what I was learning, how to treat it, you know? What uh, do you think uh, the kids are going to be saying? I say kids, because I'm an old guy now. Yeah, me too. You (laughs) and me both. That, I mean, we have YouTube and other kinds of digital ways of learning through online downloads of uh, tricks. And and the brick-and-mortar shops are soon becoming a thing of the past, just like paper paper with magazines uh, and everything. There are not as many magazines as what we used to have either. I'm just wondering about, fast forward, let's say another 40 years from now, what kind of conversations will they be having saying, well, I learned from, I mean, I can't, they can yeah, I don't these per- are so important, these relationships. Right. You know. Well, see, you hit on it right there. The word is relationships. Mm-hmm. And even though the, like the online lectures is a huge thing now, and yeah. I've even, you know, I've done them. I have a Penguin lecture, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I did a master class for Vanishing Vanish, Inc. Right. last year that was pretty well received. Um, even though all that's true, there is no substitute for personal experience. Right. And that includes at a lecture where you get to ask a question, where it's a live event that just like any theater happens only once. And all of that is being lost. And so I think there is, you know, there's an accumulation of information, but information is not knowledge. Ah, there is a difference there. Uh, you know, and and so, you know, and there's always been, look, there's always been two magics. There's always been the small conjugenti of serious conjurers, whether it's artistically speaking or professional workers, both, uh, you know, some of the greatest magicians in the history of the world have been amateurs uh, and some of the worst have been professionals but was hummer an amateur i'm sorry was hummer an amateur he hummer? was a, i think hummer was an amateur yeah because he was a band leader i think yeah that's why I oh you're talking about himber 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 was a band leader yeah and an inventor and but i don't think he performed but he professionally. wasn't i could be i wrong. didn't think so i don't okay. think so but that kind of thing you have people so, who are yeah, inventors exactly so but the point is is that 
there's always been two magics. There's always been this huge hobby and this small congenti. Pete Byro, when he wrote the column years ago for Genie called The Real Works, and he had a subtitle that said, at any given time, there's, there's only 10 people who know what's going on in magic or are having an impact mm. or something. You know, a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. <laughs> and so, I, you know, and what's happened because of information uh, technology, because of the internet and so forth, the amateur community has exploded. The numbers today are vastly beyond what they ever were before. And because they have make, access to it. Because they have access. And, and you can make millions selling, you know, fancy decks of cards, right? Just cards. Just, just cards. That's true. Just I, cards. I, I'm amazed by that. Yeah. They're coming out all the time. Exactly. And so I think, but there's always this difference. There's always these two worlds. There's always been these two worlds. There always will be. And so hmm. of younger magicians right now, and I'm not talking kids or even so much, um, you know, guys I know who are who are from 20s to 30s to approaching 40. That's a big range, but within a generational period yes. there, mm-hmm. you know, I think of out west. I think of Ben Seidman or mm-hmm. David Gerard from San Francisco. Um, back east, guys who are working in uh, not just guys. But for a number of performers, Alex Boyce, male and female, who are working at Speakeasy Magic. Alex yeah. Boyce, Mark Calabrese, yeah. Matt Holtzclaw, Prakash Peru. These people, mm-hmm. that list I just gave you, these people, uh, Rachel Wax Rachel. is part of that crowd. These people are genuine workers. Mm-hmm. And they are not doing it any differently than workers have ever done it before there's only one path to becoming an original polished working artist you know what's the, that path the got well by going out there and doing it in front of people Flight you time. you're in, you and i our generation our mentors were workers True. nobody on earth did more shows than guys like johnny thompson and jay marshall jay marshall opened for frank sinatra in vegas jay marshall worked mm-hmm. the london palladium, palladium twice Tom Sony played every major stage all over the world, played all the biggest Las Vegas stages for years. Mm-hmm. These guys, they didn't do tens of thousands of shows. They did 100,000 shows. Mm-hmm. And now what what happens is is there's, I think there's sort of two sets of mentors in a way because there's these sort of, fault, dare I say it, now I'm going to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, <laughs> but you know, I think there's a, some kind of a generation of false idols of people who present themselves as mentors and they have these followings online and they put out all this expensive content that mm-hmm. really has very little content because nobody can keep put, puts out great tricks every week. Our mentors didn't put out a great trick a week, they put out a great trick a decade. Because um, that's what it takes. Remember Roger Klaus saying that many times. You know, it took twenty years for that move. Exactly to learn that and half move. Right, or whatever. that's right. And so um, instead, what passes for so-called content now is this kind of pseudo theory. And I'm a guy of all people to be talking about theory. You know, I got three. I wrote three books of essays. So I'm a big believer in theory. But what passes for theory now very much is a kind of kind of sort of blathering you know and taking up space so there's something to sell by people who don't do shows 
Mm-hmm. They don't, but they're influencers they nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Well, right, but who are they influencing? They're influencing this amateur market who unfortunately looks at that and goes, oh, this is what great magic is. I see. But, what, but, if yeah. you ask, but if you ask Ben Seidman or David Gerard or Alex Boyce or any of these people what great magic is, they're not, not going to mention any of this stuff mm-hmm. that's you know, flowing on a daily basis, this river of shit that comes down from right. Murphy's and Penguin and so forth. Right. That's not what they're talking about. Alex Boyce is like 25 or something. Mm-hmm. And he's like an incarnate, you know, he's heading towards me. He has the potential to, you know, to be some kind of Johnny Thompson in the future in the sense of being a general practitioner. The guy, the kid does fantastic close-up magic mm-hmm. and he's got probably, you know, I think he's got the best contemporary bird act, one of the few bird acts out there. And he did the perfect thing. He does the bird act is based on all the classic elements, all the classical stuff from Channing and from uh, Johnny Thompson. He worked with Johnny Thompson, learned a lot from Johnny. And, you know, he does the double, he does Channing's double steel, the whole thing. But he's modernized it in, in gentle, tasteful ways where, first of all, he's doing it in a skinny modern suit, right. which blows people's minds. And then he's got this fantastic finale effect with this paper airplane. You know, it's just mm-hmm. amazing. Right. It's fantastic. So that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be building on the classics, on the shoulders of giants, and then tweaking it and making it your own. And that's exactly what Alex has done. And if you watch him do close did a I saw him do a close-up magic lecture at Magi Fest a couple of years ago. It was absolutely terrific. Classic stuff, cloyed through the table, things like this. Right. But Little touches, the kind of stuff that, you know, pros and workers really live for, these elegant little touches, right. but which amateurs aren't going to spend the weekly gar- you know, money on because it's just these fine little details that people who are doing the same material for new... You know, Albert Goshman always said this. He said, amateurs do new tricks for old audiences and professionals do old tricks for new audiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said... He would say, you know, yeah, I went back to New York, you know, and I visited the store and whatever and the club. And there, it's all the same guys doing the same thing and nobody ever gets any good. Well, they don't get any good because they're not they're doing a new trick every week instead of That's right. the old tricks over and over again. And, of course, Eugene Berger was the one who wrote about this maybe more articulately than anyone. He was, Eugene talked about this throughout all of his literature and all mm-hmm. of his work about polishing a limited repertoire the first time i met eugene and eugene was a dear dear friend and a very potent influence on me and the very first time i met him face to face i'd already read his first book like 50 times and i met him at a lecture and i remember him talking about repertoire and he's saying my current repertoire is uh consists of 28 routine tricks and routines down from 43 i'm moving in the right direction uh, and I thought to myself, wow, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Wow. That made, really, that made my head explode. It, it does open and, it up. And, and then what happened was I even took it further because since I had read his, actually his first two pamphlets and I picked up a third mm-hmm. one, the new one at the, re- at, the, at the lecture, and he talked about, you know, he was teaching some new tricks in the lecture, and I went home and I thought, well, 28 tricks. I bet I could make a list of like, I don't know, maybe three-quarters of his working repertoire. That's an interesting exercise. You never get to see that list from right. professionals. So I made that list. Hmm. And it was like a good three-quarters, 80% Big of his repertoire. Of mm-hmm. And then I sat and I studied that list. I studied that list hard. And I tried to extract 
lessons from it, and I ended up extracting two really important lessons from it that I've written about. I wrote about years ago. They're in my first book, Shattering Illusions. And you know, which is a good book. I appreciate you oh, writing thank you that very too. Much. I loved it. Well, thanks for saying so. And you know, I learned that first of all, every single trick, with I think either one or was it two, two exceptions. Every other trick had some kind, even if it was minimal, some kind of direct audience involvement, direct audience interaction. That, that was a revelation to me, you know, because I was still in that love and sleight of hand and difficult yeah. coin stuff and, and, you know, oh, see the pretty thing. Exactly. The kind of magic that magicians love <laughs> the to work on, thing, you know. Yeah. And I went through my repertoire, and I just started throwing stuff out that you couldn't involve a spectator with or figuring out clever ways, like Eugene had done, to involve a spectator where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. That was the first lesson. The second lesson was more subtle and took a while to extract, and this is also I wrote an essay about. And I realized after a while that there were very few visual effects in Eugene's repertoire. Now, Eugene did miracles. Every trick was a miracle. Every, As Bob Reed said after the first time he met him, every trick is a closer. Mm-hmm. Eugene didn't really do middle tricks or, you know, like every trick was a killer trick. But he didn't do a lot of visual magic, in other words, where you actually see the effect. You know, a, a color change is a visual effect. A card in the matchbook is a startling, is a miracle effect, but it's not visual. You don't see the magic happen. You understand that magic has happened mm-hmm. when you see the different conditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and I'm addicted to visual magic. You know, I do all these color changes and, and visual effects all the time. I, I love these visual effects. So, and I noticed there was hardly any visual effects in Eugene's magic. And the and the visual effects that there were mostly, except in one case maybe, depended on more of a gimmick than sleight of hand. But the point was, uh, there there were a couple, at least one of each. But the point that I extracted after a great deal of thought was that visual effects can only be achieved one of two ways, which is either with advanced sleight of hand or with some kind of gaff or gimmick. Right, you right. cannot achieve a visual effect with a subtlety, right? That's a good point. It's too subtle. Right? They don't get what's happening. Well, no, you can't accomplish anything. A key card okay. is you know, is a subtle principle yes. that doesn't give you a visual effect. So a visual effect, you're either going to do some beautiful sleight of hand or you're going to, well, like one of the visual effects in Eugene's repertoire then was card warp. Mm-hmm. Card warp is a visual effect. Yeah. It's gaffed. Yeah, well, it is a gaff card. Gaffed. He had to prepare it's a, it's that. It's a prepared card. Right, right. So it's gaff. But he had a nice presentation with the breaking oh, back. Oh, I'm not knocking whatever. it. Yeah, yeah. I do it. It's one of my favorite tricks. Uh-huh. I'm not knocking this fact. I'm extracting from it I of see. what the what the how the tools what, work, what made it, and what the tools can give you. Gotcha. Right. Uh-huh. And um, you can't develop a repertoire that's heavy in visual effects unless you're going to move to. A lot of sleight of hand. In Eugene's case, he didn't rely on a lot of visual effects. He was doing something else, but he was, but again, but he was very strict about his and demanding with his standards of how strong the effects were, and and how practical and consistently deliverable they were. Because because Eugene, you know, was essentially Don Allen in spirit drag. He grew up watching, you know, Don Allen was the most influential magician of his, of well, maybe two generations. Chicago. Yeah. Well, yes. And his parents took him to see Don when, yeah. when, when Eugene was young. Mm-hmm. And he knew Don a little bit. 
And Don, who modeled, who created the model for the modern close-up worker for maybe two generations of magicians, I mean, my generation, we all, once we saw Don Allen on the Johnny Carson show or the Ed Sullivan show, we all went, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. And his impact was profound, and he defined that kind of wisecracking, you know, quick, quick, but no, no wasted... No wasted moments, no wasted actions, no wasted lines, no wasted script. Everything counted. He did transitions between when he's, if you watch the Magic Palace, he's putting the proper way and getting the new one. It's not. That's a because dead that moment. ten thousand hour. Uh, well, that's part of philosophy. it. Philosophy. That's perhaps part of it. But you know, you one of a big line of Eugene's was, you know, that part of the job of performance is the elimination of non moments. That's a great phrase. And that's something that amateurs, you know, have trouble mastering. Mm-hmm. But that comes right out of Don Allen's work. So mm-hmm. what what Eugene did was he really modeled, he and he wrote about this in the introduction of the Don Allen book. He was profoundly influenced by Don, direct effects, practical methods, um, you know, just impact, clarity, cleanliness, elimination of non-moments, using opening questions to provoke interest and engagement. All of this stuff comes from Don, except then Eugene transformed it all into his personality. Wow, yeah. This kind of, you know, this as as Phil Wilmarth said, you know, this slightly malevolent Santa Claus <laughs> um, with, this, with the baritone voice and this tremendous presence and talking mm-hmm. about do you believe in spirits and all of this kind of thing. And so Don Allen gets, you know, is almost invisible. Magicians didn't really recognize that. And yet, really, it, it's Eugene's most profound single influence, I think. Well, he did influence magic in so many ways yes, throughout did. the world. And one of the things that was little known about him in his final years, apparently he had delivered a lecture on, I mentioned earlier, Di Vernon's trick that can't be explained. Yes. So he had a lot of work on that, and he gave yes. a lecture exclusively uh, on that. Did you spend much time with him and talk yes. about that? So I'm very intimately involved with that material. <laughs> Are you? Okay. Very intimately involved with it. And in, in 85 and 86, Eugene did a series of workshops for about a year and a half. Okay specifically on Equivoke. It wasn't just a trick that kind of be explained, but the trick that kind of be explained was sort of the climax of the workshop, mm-hmm. three-hour workshops. And Was this overseas? Was like no, Switzerland? this was in the oh, States. In the US. Okay. This was in the States. So he would go, he'd do a lecture, and then he'd offer the, uh, the Equivoke workshop separately for a higher fee. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, there was only a handful of them, and there was, we don't have an exact record, unfortunately. There wasn't many of them, there were really only a handful over about a year and a half. There weren't big groups. Mm-hmm. I attended either once or twice. My my memory is fuzzy as to whether I, whether it was once or twice, um, because I was so intimately involved with the material and I was so I was very close with Eugene and we talked about this material all the time. And I do a lot of this material and I do it yeah. to this day. And he had been introduced to Equivoke and to the trick that cannot be explained by Max. They were best of friends. Because I remember the, the pamphlet that Max came out with. It was just of course. A, yeah, that the was all groundbreaking. Be, yeah, groundbreaking um, uh, pamphlet. Just a three or four page pamphlet. Basically. Yeah, a little maybe maybe Whatever. eight or ten. Pages, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, yeah, and it's still available today. And. Um, that was a groundbreaking piece of work. There, there's a little other 
material, the Fantini book. There's right, really let's... precious little in the literature about Equivoke. There was in Corinda's uh, 13 Steps, there's an, there's an Equivoke, basically what we would have called back then a magician's choice of how to force one of three books for a mm-hmm. book test. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the significant literature about Equivoke is Max's pamphlet and... Um, we can mention the Fantini book. The later David Burglis book has a lot about, has a beautiful chapter about it. Burglis used it all the time right. in impromptu settings. Right. Um, and there's Max's phenomenal video, uh, which is called Multiplicity, I think, and, which is fantastic. And you can see the underpinnings of Eugene's work when you see Max's video. And then the final... Chap- the final book, really, especially the final chapter of the final posthumous book of the, mo- you know, the two-volume set that Larry Haast wrote of uh, Eugene. Eugene Berger from the Beyond and Eugene Berger Final Secrets, mm-hmm. and the Final Secrets book, and these books are quite wonderful, and it's all material, especially the last book is all material Eugene had held back all these years. It was part of his uh, actual working repertoire. Yes, all of it, and then you know a, f- a few elements. A few elements of it had been taught in the Equivoke workshops, mm-hmm. and uh, the final chapter of the f- of the final book is trick that cannot be explained. And of course, we with all of that, we have to also give ver- credit to Vernon, who devised this incredible trick, which was and Vernon was always interested in the idea of multiple outs. Um, there's a story that David Ben tells. What's that? In the first biography about uh, Vernon being fooled with a little trick by his father. It had to do with chalk marks on the table or something. And then eventually, after being fooled multiple, multiple, multiple times, Vernon finally looks under the table one day and realizes all the colors are there, and it's it's multiple outs. Mm -hmm. And he always got remained interested in that. And one of the many plots that you that Vernon had a profound impact on or interest in was the thought think of a card plot and he devised revolutionary trick out of sight out of mind and out of sight out of mind relies among other things on multiple outs mm-hmm. and then eventually that leads to the trick that cannot be explained a trick an entire trick that is all outs which is why he said to Ganson, you know, you, I can't explain it to you. Right. Um, For those people who are listening, we have a gamut of people who yes, know a lot. For yes. those who don't, could you just briefly explain a couple of sentences what the uh, so uh, well, Equivoke, you know, known in in its more primitive form as the magician's choice, is the has been called the purest form of deception because mm-hmm. it is purely and entirely verbal. You are completely deceiving the audience with language, with the clever polished expert use of equivocal language where you appear to be um, saying things that are specific but you are they are open to interpretation and you reinterpret them moments later repeatedly so that they appear certain like my favorite joke is okay equivoke or equivoque oh uh, well so uh, what would you say the thing about that is so this is one of the few things Max Maven was a dear friend of mine and I'm still not really accustomed to talking about him in the past tense Um, but one of the few things Max and I ever disagreed on is the correct pronunciation of this word because Max was fond of equivocate 
And he justified that because he felt, well, it's a special term in the magic world. It means a particular thing. And so it doesn't matter that the correct pronunciation of this French word is equivoque. Okay, if you said mm-hmm. equivocate on, on, under in front of any any Frenchman, they would die laughing. And the, yeah. and, and the way equivocate came about, I have no doubt, is because since you can tell it's a French word from the spelling, and Americans know something about that accent, you know, at the right. end, they turned it into equivocate okay. because it was a guess, it was an uneducated guess, and it caught on. So I myself, I I far prefer equivocate. Okay, so the joke is, yeah. <laughs> I'd say equivoque or equivocate, you would say? Uh, equivoque. Okay, so we put it, we forget about equivoque. So oh, we... <laughs> yes, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, so that's equivoque, and it is something that is butchered by magicians all the time. Boy, is it. And difficult to left do. Left or right, then again, left right. or right, again, left yeah. or right. And so on. we eliminate, or so yeah. we choose, yeah. and all of this. Right. And so it's butchered all the time, but if handled with subtlety and expertise and preparation, be very powerful. it is extremely powerful. And I have closed, I had one set at the castle this week where I had an unusually small audience. I only had about eight people. Mm-hmm. And you know, you was that saw, Tuesday night when it was raining? And you saw the set, yeah. And, yeah. and you saw the set, it's a very high energy set, what right. I do in the close up room here, yes. and it builds to a really intense. Very fast moving, very loud kind of climax, and right. that was not going to happen with eight, eight people. people. Right. And so I cut my closer, and I closed with the trick that cannot be explained. Hmm. I closed my show with it. Yeah. So, um, and you can fool when you have really difficult audiences. That guy who insists he's not going to be misdirected, and he's just burning <laughs> her hands and That's right. whatever. You can actually you can just fry them with Echovoke because there's no move to catch. That's right. And so, trick that cannot be explained to complete the idea. Trick that kind of explain is an improvisational idea of Vernon's where you put aside a prediction card, you let the spectator shuffle and spread the deck face up, and then you direct the spectator through a series of actions and choices and decisions by which cards are eliminated, and eventually the spectator ends up selecting the card that is typically the mate of the prediction card. Mm-hmm. And it's all the magician, all consists of the magician taking advantage of whatever the random circumstances are at the time. The worst case situation would be actually, in a way, the card being on top. Well, you, say? you have to learn how to sell that if that happens. Yeah. But you make the good point that magicians think that That'd be you know, the best as copper. quick as you get to it, yeah. the better it is. Like if you just tell the spectator, okay, move your finger down the spread and touch one card, and if that's a hit, magicians go crazy. Mm-hmm. And But actually, it's probably best if you go at least one step further right. because it eliminates the feeling that of, of just that the magician got lucky, even if the spectator doesn't know what's going on. And also... Um, it just adds to the precision because the whole idea of trick that can be explained is you are presenting your affect being this is the way it happens every time. Mm-hmm. The things I direct you to do, the questions I ask you, this is the way it happens every time. This is the way I set out to do it with completely deceiving them in the idea that nothing could be further from the truth. 
But that's how it has to seem. It has to seem inevitable. And that's why a big part of the secret, if you will, the method, is the magician's affect, which has to be extremely calm mm -hmm. and also immediate in response. You cannot show your thinking. If you hesitate in the slightest at any point to show that you're thinking, mm -hmm. you've blown it. You've, you've completely blown it. Right. Why is he thinking? So... Um, if, all you're, of these, if you're adding the cards, thinking, okay, you're, exactly. you're trying to talk. Exactly. So all of these things inter, interplay, you know, together. And um, and Max was of the strong opinion that even no matter how far you went, even if you ended up having had a bad day and you went eight steps, it was just as strong, if not stronger, if you treated it appropriately. Mm -hmm. So I can put across the attitude, whether it's eight steps in, and in fact, I had a lot of steps that night. Mm -hmm. Or if it ends up on top, I can do either one of those and sell that as a miracle. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is affect. And the whole thing is verbal and psychological. And so it's a lot of fun to do. And Eugene talked about this because it keeps you sharp. You can't yep. go to sleep on it. If you're doing – Eugene did, you know, made much of, most of his working career doing restaurants and strolling magic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that can, you can get a little numb to that after a while to try and keep it interesting. Right, right. You do things like this that keep you sharp. Anyway, uh, the, the, the final secrets chapter is, book and chapter is really a, a major work. And the difference being that Vernon and Max, and Vernon and Max spent many, many countless hours sort of playing the trick that kind of be explained together as a game, which Eugene, which uh, mm. Vernon had dis devised with his friend Ray Grismer, um, where you put a card aside and then you try and lead the other person to to it and you right. go back and forth. And what they were trying to do, what they enjoyed doing, was trying to devise pathways that they'd never done before, mm -hmm. some, that would took unique um, opportunities from the conditions of the deck mm -hmm. to recognize distances and spellings and countings. And there might be a 10 spot on the face and the card was 10 cards away. Things like this. They were right. always trying to work on that. And that was what was interesting. Whereas Eugene, again, going harking back to the Don Allen idea, Eugene always wanted to reliably bring every trick, even tricks that had risk involved or unpredictabilities. He wanted to be sure that he could bring every trick to a strong climax. And so he took all of that knowledge and a lot of Max's work and a lot of his own, and he created these patterns that became formulas for him that were absolutely consistent. And that greatly influenced me. I was, I was interested in, in Equivoke very far back, and I saw Max do some when we were very early on in our friendship. Um, so I was always interested in it, but it, but when when I took Eugene's workshop, um, I really adopted his approaches and also a few of his tricks. He has some fantastic routines um, that are you know truly memorable, and uh, so it's a it's a great body of work. Like Memdeck, it is it is a methodology. It's mm -hmm. not just something to toss off. You can't really do it well unless you. You, do it. you really take it on and you really master it. But Larry Haas has done a wonderful job with this final book, um, both final books, but especially this last book I'm very fond of because I was strongly attached to that material. And I was, I was very curious, if not concerned, as to how that would come out. And when I saw the book, I was, I was actually I was very pleased 
And I told Larry as much, and one thing has led to another, and I can't really talk about this yet, but there's going to be, it turns out, as a result of Larry and my interactions and some things that I know that Larry didn't because he wasn't around in the days of the workshops, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a little something extra happening, I think, to add to that record. There was something Bob Cassie had said many years ago, and that is to know what your powers are, to be very clear about that. And so do you think about that as a magician? I mean, you've been uh, coined as being the James Bond using a deck of cards as your gun, you know. Right. Uh, So what... I mean, do you do you try to prove the sleight of hand as a way that you do this, or is it magic? It's a really or, good question. Is it mysticism? It's a good question. It's a hard question to answer. And and the first problem is that most magicians don't really try and answer it. Mm-hmm. And um, you You're know, just doing bubble gum for the eyes. Yeah, you know. exactly. And Bob, of course, was specifically Bob, who was a dear friend of mine and who I admired greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, yeah, he was the other guy, guy. That's uh, too bad. He's he was fast. one of a time, one yep. of a kind, one of the greatest mm-hmm. performing mentalists I ever saw in my life. I mean, yeah. count on one hand, you know, yeah. kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And mentalists were always shocked that he and I were pals because because you really were the big PDA on mentalism. and yeah. I was skeptic <laughs> right. and all this kind of stuff. But the first I met Bob at a convention, he'd been off the scene for quite some years. He was booked for the. Uh, Magic in the Rockies convention. Oh, yeah. Uh, a bunch of local mentalists or the PEA, whatever, idiots, they <laughs> went to the producers and tried to get me unbooked, actually. Wow. They they wow. went to the producers and said, well, we want to see Bob Cassidy, but we're going to we're gonna boycott your convention if you don't unbook Jamie. Because we're Jamie haters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, had, I had plenty of them. Uh, you know, I always say if you just take your favorite, you know, Ten of your favorite epithets and put them into Google with my name. You are guaranteed multiple hits. So um, anyway, the producer you said – You're opinionated a little so bit. So the, the producer said, that's nice. Have a nice life. Yeah. And, of Good course, they showed up anyway yeah. because they wanted to see Bob. Sure. And they were all waiting for the fireworks between Bob and I because he'd been, a, one, I think, one of the founders of the PA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then – you know, the first event of the convention was Bob's lecture. It was an afternoon lecture. Mm-hmm. And I went to this lecture. I was knocked out, like knocked out. And and right. also one of the interesting things about the lecture, a little piece of subtext that I never forget, was when he did went to the faux memorization of the deck, he did this beautiful false riffle shuffle, like perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, not just a fake thing. So like, you're surprised by this real, sl- right. slide of hand So shops. I said to my, oh, look, because I always said, you know, those who can do slide of hand and those who can't do mentalism. So <laughs> this guy had chops and he knew about magic. And the, and the truth of the matter was, you see, the yeah. real Bob Cassidy, just like the real Tony Andrusi, who was also a great friend of mine, mm-hmm. these were guys who would posture about, you know, oh, mentalism is superior to magic, and oh, the, and, and, and Tony would always go on, you know, oh, the terrible card tricks and blah, blah, blah. I went to one of the invocations, and I took 100 pins, four ace pins with me that I had made up, uh-huh. and I handed them out to everybody, just got them to wear them, just to piss Tony <laughs> off. But it was all playful, you know, yeah, we, yeah, were, sure. we were pals. Uh-huh. But the truth of the matter was, and Bob Cassidy and, and, and Tony Andrusi, were incredibly knowledgeable about magic, like unbelievably, yeah. like walking encyclopedias. Well, Tony was one, of course, as Tom Palmer, who had invented exactly. Johnny Which, Thompson's act. Well, had, certainly had an influence, provided yeah. some yeah. elements right, that, right, Tom, right. that Johnny used. And, you know, and Tony was an illusion builder. He was award-winning illusion guy right. at the magic clubs. If you go read the history, right. 
And so these guys loved magic. They loved good magic. And they were both told you they'd much rather watch a really good card trick than a really lousy mentalism trick because they sure. knew what was good. They cared about what was good. Mm-hmm. And so Bob and I walked up to Bob at the end of that lecture and I waited for, you know, people to kind of clear. And I said, hi, you know, my name's Jamie and Swiss. And I just want to tell you that was one of the greatest mentalism lectures I've ever seen in my life. And he went, well, thanks a lot. Let's go get a drink. And we sat down at the bar and we were Pals we spent the, the whole convention together, and we were pals ever since. Yeah. You know, just like he's I mean, that kind of guy. He just I, had... I spoke to Bob. I, you know, I spoke to Bob when he when he was in the hospital for the last time, just weeks before he died. And I, I made a joke. I'm the laugh guy. I made him a joke. I said, you know, you got the potential here to do the world's greatest living and dead test. <laughs> um, and you know, he was one of the, the last guys I worked with here at the Magic Castle. Oh, he was great. He was, in the bother man. I, I was working the close up, like with you. I mean, you can't yeah. see me, and I can't see you because we're working the right, same time. Right. Same thing with him. But we were hanging out in Nirvana, and we yep. would go to lunch every day over yep. to In and Out or someplace. You oh, know? good and luck I went to up you. To, went up to his apartment, and I did a, a long episode with him. Oh, that's too. great. Yeah. I mean, he was so great. Anyway, anyway. So Bob was big on this idea. He was a deep theoretical thinker, and he was very big on this idea that especially in mentalism, it's really important in mentalism to define your abilities and, and, and also to define each effect because unlike in conjuring, where the method tends to automatically define the effect, in mentalism, the method almost never defines the effect because the method's... The methods, there's really only one method in mentalism, or maybe two, which is the secret control, uh, obtaining and control of information. Information, right. And... Of however you get it, center, terror, whatever Max said it's two, because, well, notice how I just phrased it. I said the secret (laughs) obtaining or control of. Okay. So you can control using forces. I see. So Max said that, that's a second method. Fair enough, I, I can't argue that. So it's, but that's it. That's the method of all mentalism. And so mm. now it's up to the performer to define, are you, are you using that method, those two methods, to create the illusion of uh, precognition, clairvoyance, mm-hmm. or telepathy? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? And or psychokinesis. And, well, but they're right. But that's a physical effect. Okay, so that's more you. of a magic trick. Okay. So whether we classify as mentalists or not, it's not using information. Okay. So, true. you know, a prediction, you are changing the time frame. Of, you're making it look like you, the information was there ahead of time, when even though you're, sh- you're time shifting, right? Mm-hmm. And in clairvoyance, you're getting information from objects. And in telepathy, you're getting information in real time from another mind. But it's all about information. And so what happens in mentalism all the time, especially mentalists who have not studied conjuring first, it's not a coincidence that the greatest mentalists are typically ones who did magic first. Um, uh, Michael Weber, Tim Conover, Tim Conover, perfect example. One of the greatest sleight of hand. He was, was about a dear to ask friend you. of mine. I was going to ask you, dear about friend him. of mine, one of the greatest sleight of hand workers I ever saw. Right. Weber's another one. Mm-hmm. Eric Mead's another one. Again, Cassidy knew magic inside and out. Right. Did some sleight of hand. These guys, and and you know who said this over and over again. And now I'm you know showing our age here, <laughs> but. Um, Charles Reynolds was a dear, dear friend of mine. And mm-hmm. Charlie Reynolds was a historian. He was a magic designer. Consultant. He was Doug Henning's yeah. magic consultant. He was a writer. And he loved magic and he loved mentalism. He worked with Blackstone Jr., I think. Yeah, I th- mm-hmm. that's right. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, um, and 
And Charlie, oh, even though he loved mentalism and hung out with mentalists, he was part of the 13 in oh, New was York. He? I believe, I I believe he that. was. I believe huh. he was. But he always said, Charlie liked to practice the cups and balls every day. If you went up to his study, the cups and balls hmm. were always out. Hmm. He liked to practice it every day. He hardly ever performed it. But he always said that every magician of every type, from close-up magic to mentalism to illusionists, should learn the cups and balls. Because if you learn the cups and balls, you learn to understand all the fundamental principles of magic. That's brilliant. And Mr. Re- not to mention also misdirection. That's right? exactly. The more I think about yeah, that. Wow. Charlie said this all the time. Huh. And this is why these conjurers make such great mentalists because they're very clear on effect. Sure. Right? Sure. And You have to be because you don't have any accoutrement to, to use or no apparatus, I should right. say. Exactly. Uh, so you're using the mind, so it has to be conveyed verbally. So how often do we see in mentalism this effect where, you know, the guy is like divining the card or whatever from the span. It's red and it's a high number and it's uh I think it's a it's uh it's a ten of clubs. Is that correct? And she goes, Yes. Well not only that, but in this envelope that's been on stage beforehand, there it is and take out the prediction. What does it say? The ten of clubs. Well if you wrote the ten of clubs in the envelope beforehand, what the hell were you doing? I already knew that. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's a misunderstand that's a lack of understanding of the effect. Good and that's point. what Cassidy was talking about. Yeah. But now to enlarge it to your original back to your original question and what does that mean for magicians? I think the important thing for magicians or conjurers is not so much just the effect or even the power, but what is your idea of magic? The closing essay in my first book the search for mystery talks about asking yourself the question, what does magic mean to you? There is no absolute definition. Mm-hmm. It's up to each performer. We have flexibility. It's up to each performer to define it for themselves. And the problem with so many performers is nobody, gets, nobody sits down to ask or answer the question for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by failing to answer it, it leaves a tremendous lack of clarity. And it mean and it leads to these kind of postage stamp, you know, Pokemon collections of shows <laughs> where it's one of these and one of these and one of these, and you're doing, you know, you're doing uh, card tricks and then stopping your pulse and then reading the future and it gets well, me like, confusing, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just a mishmash. Right, exactly. There's no point of view, and so I remember, uh, you know, I mentioned. Uh, Derek Dingle before is a tremendous impact on me and a great artist, one of the very misunderstood and not, um, you know, his name I think is is not carrying as strongly as some others with younger magicians because we haven't got a lot of great video uh, of so many of that generation. But but he not only had the best hands of anyone I ever saw in that era, but he was also this terrific performer. And so um, I remember watching the. Tom Snyder Late Show. And the Tomorrow had, Show? The Tomorrow Show. Where, there yeah. you go. And he had, uh, I think he had on one show, he had did a few shows with mag- magicians, but he did one where he had Henning and Dingle and maybe Ricky, I'm not sure if it was the same show. And Snyder says, well, what does it mean to you to be a magician? What does a magician mean to you? Good question. Right. And so Henning started and of course he started with this whole you know magic and wonder and all that kind of <laughs> yeah, kindergarten kind of, class ooh, it's, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let's all sit in the floor and finger paint that's right yeah he was kind of of the hippie generation mm-hmm. i guess with the uh, colorful rainbows and unicorns yeah, and all things. that i yeah and i mean 
not to take away from Dougie. Not at all. He, he accomplished great things. <laughs> but the style in the time was never really to my taste. Um, I always felt like he did one unrelated effect after another. Well, it, I think, it wasn't really an act like, let's say, David Copperfield started doing vignettes and things were happening in a story, whereas it, Henning would... Yeah, have, but that vignette was a limited period in David's work, and even uh, though it's probably still your or my favorite, he left that behind a long time yeah. ago. I think yeah, when, you're doing, show now, I think you're, when right. you're doing one-hour TV specials, nobody did any kind of through line. You mm. know, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, okay. you know, the greatest you know stage stage magic act of our time is Penn and Teller, and they yeah. they don't they, you know they don't try and do a narrative through line. Anyway, I'm getting off stuff. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Be that as it may. So Henning talked about magic and wonder and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Then he gets to um, Dingle. Dingle. Uh-huh. And Derek said, and I guess I would have been, uh, this would have been, uh, I would have been in my t- 20s, mm-hmm. early 20s or something. And Derek, he gets, he says, well, what about you? And Derek just flat out, he goes, I'm not a magician, I'm a manipulator. And I was like, holy, sh-. I, I was, I was horrified, right? Because mm-hmm. I still had this—I had this idea of this kind of pure, you know, sort of magic and mystery kind of thing in my head. And um, and he went on to say, "There's there's writings where he talks about this, and he said, you know, I don't think it means meaningful to use the word magician in modern times. I use skill and to create a magical effects and so on and so on." And what I learned in later years, what I came to understand when I started to think about the subject of character, which is such a confusing subject to amateur magicians, um, is that even though his choice is different than mine, um, the fact that Derek had a clear idea of what he was doing mm-hmm. is part of what made his work so great. Uh-huh. So... So Derek had unbelievable sleight of hand skills. Like, as a friend of, as a colleague said to me recently, supernat at a supernatural level. Like he was just unbelievably skilled, mm-hmm. almost Breast- like an alien. <laughs> yeah, really, it was. He was breathtaking. The sleight of hand he could do, you couldn't. It was unmistakable that some kind of skill was involved. Mm-hmm. And so what he would do, but he was also very playful and funny, charming, incredibly I him charming. Many once and. Uh, so he would manage to talk about like gambling themes in almost every trick he did. Mm-hmm. But very often it was obviously completely tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when he he was the first guy who ever did card warp on television. Hmm. Um, I think on the Dick Cavett show, if I'm not mistaken. And I think when he, you know, when he folds Prepared the it. cards, he says something about you know putting a little crimp for the gambler or something and like everything he did he would do some kind of gambling story no matter how sort of silly or tongue-in-cheek really is the word he he had a lot of little ironic jokes in his work but by using that all the time by using that you know here's a funny way to here's a strange way to cheat you may never have seen things like this it gave a context a framework and it gave a point of view that the and audience what, could understand and and latch on and latch on to, and it was a pathway into the performer uh-huh. as well as the work and break the fourth because wall. what audiences crave from every live performer it doesn't matter if it's a magician a stand up comic a singer um, even some actors who are larger than life what what audiences crave first and foremost is point of view they want to have a sense that the performer has a point of view about what they're doing. The audience may not agree, they may not even like it, but 
they will formulate their own point of view in response, pinging off mm. the sense that the performer has a clear idea and perspective and attitude and place they're coming from towards what they're doing. You know, the things that Jerry Seinfeld talks about in stand-up are nothing at all like the things that my late friend Gilbert Gottfried would talk about in stand-up. Like, completely worlds apart. Right, of course. Their, their, their point of view was completely different. And that's what people crave from a live performer. Is that it's, what you think Vernon was talking about when he was saying confusion is not magic because if you have too many points of view, the audience is confused. I don't think Vernon was taught... That's a, a line I often quote. I don't think Vernon was talking about character or performance with that. I think he was talking you see about what I'm method saying? and effect. Yes, but I think he was talking about method and effect. Okay, don't want to get off the Because he here. said, you know, confusion is not magic and the problem, you know, the, Vernon said the great thing of the cups and balls, the th- reason the cups and balls is timeless is because it incorporates almost all of the major effects of magic. Mm-hmm. If, you could, if you go by the Sam Sharp list from Neo Magic, which is you know, a banish appearance, transposition, transformation, natural laws defined in mental, mentalism, essentially, apparent mental effects, um, mental phenomena. Levitation? Uh, well, so levitation is in the fifth category of natural laws defied. Okay. Natural laws defied incorporates all of the T-I-O-N effects, penetration, restoration, destruction, uh, levitation, animation, they're all in natural laws defied, yeah. right? That that makes a unified category. Now, all of those effects are in the cups and balls with the exception of the mental category. And that's the power of the cups and balls. And that's the great potential of the cups and balls. But it also risks confusion. And many cups and balls routines are confusing. And so Vernon... The, you know, this idea that confusion is not magic, he always emphasized clarity of effect. And the reason I go into this on my uh, Vanishing Egg DVD about the cups and balls, the, if you ask magicians, you know, why did the Vernon routine become the basis, the standard of every cup and ball routine of the it 20th is. century right. and still is today, is. and the only other one besides... The only other one, significant one, is is well, no, Mars based on Vernon. Vernon, I guess. The only true. other significant model of a cups and balls routine is the Tommy Wonder, which oh, is sui yeah. generis. It's it's unique. You set Tommy's aside. Every other major routine is based on Vernon's routine. Well, why is that? Well, most magicians don't have an answer to that. Oh, Vernon was famous, or this. And that. They really don't know why. The reason, I believe, is deeply theoretical. Because in order to avoid confusion, confusion is not magic, what Vernon did was he organized the, his cups and balls routine into movements like, like in music, right? So mm-hmm. the ring routine was called the Symphony of the Rings. Correct. The cups should have been the Symphony of the Cups because it's, in, it's organized into mu- movements. There's a movement, a sequence, that's about vanishes. There's a movement that's about penetrations. There's a movement that's about transpositions with multiple effects. Yes. The spectator choice, the assemblage in the middle, movement about transpositions, and then finally a movement about the productions or transformations. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you don't have to address that explicitly. Some performers do occasionally. But you don't have to address it explicitly. Vernon did not. But the audience intuited, intuits this implicit, implicit themes 
of each segment, and therefore they track it, and they're not confused. They mm-hmm. get it. And this is the genius of Vernon's routine above everything else. There's other elements the that clarity. make it brilliant also. But it is the clarity and the, and the, the, the ability of the audience to follow it and it's not randomly shifting from a penetration back to a vanish and then there's another thing another transposition and then and it's that's a mess okay so i think that's what vernon was talking about there okay but in terms of this idea of you know what does magic mean to you you know you have to decide and you know i very much i'm a very much a tamarese guy i'm a very big tamarese guy and i think tamarese goes very, very, you know, absolutely locked onto the idea of in, impenetrable mystery in terms of his approach to method and effect. Mm-hmm. His approach to performance is all about joy and playfulness um, and humanity. But his lock-on effects, is completely uncompromising about effect and method. And he wants, you know, the magic way is that there's no way back for the layman to reconstruct mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. about what they've seen. And too much of magic today, I think, is magicians fooling themselves about what's really fooling the audience. You know, at mm-hmm. what level is it really fooling the audience? You can get a surprise reaction from the audience from all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you offer them a hundred bucks afterwards to say, okay, don't it? be polite. Yeah. What do you really think? Yeah. You'd be surprised. I think many magicians would be unpleasantly surprised what people understand. Unpleasantly surprised. Unpleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're doing predictions, you know, if you're doing predictions and there's just a single, you know, thing and it's in an envelope and it's in the view and then, you know, I don't know, there's a telephone involved with a calculator. Like, (laughs) there's only, you know, it's mystifying at a at a certain level. But people who are going to come back and think about it after a while, after the initial surprise and delight, are going to say, well, there's only so many possibilities here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, I think the important thing is, is, that, is that we think about what does magic mean to us and what are we trying to communicate? And when I was trying to figure this out years ago, because my work also looks quite skillful, um, Indeed and I and I can't play a clown, you know. I can't I can't conceal my skill completely. I try very hard to conceal it. I don't do flour. I really don't do flourishes. I do a couple of one-handed shuffles at the beginning, right. as if to say, I can do it. Oh, this I kind of t- you know. I'm I, you. Everybody has to shuffle cards, right? It's not just a show-off thing because it has a practical purpose. Right. Everybody has to shuffle cards. It makes sense. I would shuffle differently than you. I shuffle the cards a couple of times in that way, and then I toss it off. I don't make a big deal out of it. It's like and that's the end of your flourish. That's actually. it. I'm mm-hmm. done. Yeah. I'm done because I have bigger fish to fry, right? Mm-hmm. So right. to speak. Mm-hmm. So I can't hide it. So I acknowledge it and I use it to garner a little attention and credibility. But then I throw it away. It's not really what I'm interested in, and it's not what I want them to be interested in. But you know, Teller said to me many, many years ago, we were discussing this over lunch one day. This is a long, long time ago when I was trying to work this out, how to transmit it to platform. And he said, well, I think what you're doing is you're doing, you're trying to do something that's, you're, you're, you're demonstrating skill beyond skill. So we know that there's skill involved, but what you're accomplishing is beyond anything that skill, mere skill can explain. And I went, wow. Bingo, thanks. And I, that's something I, I use to guide, guide my work um, wow. ever since. So, 
Man, you dropped a lot of gems here. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a few times myself even. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Sure. I appreciate that. Well, I, I'm so glad we had a chance to sit down, and you can share your ideas then with uh, – boy, I can't believe I just looked at my watch over here. This <laughs> went by so quickly. <laughs> and I always like to close because it's called the Magic Word Podcast of what it is that is my guest's – in your life, what is your chi? What is your moral compass? What is it that you think about? I mean, not just a word. I mean, it could be a phrase, a sentence, or just your philosophy of life, I guess. Oh, man. Uh... <laughs> what do you live by? When you get up in the morning, get, get you going. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that um, I'm not a big believer in happiness. I think that's unless people de- define that differently. We do. I think um, maybe satisfaction is... A more realistic goal, you know, we all face, we all swim uphill against obstacles. And, um, you know, you never know what the other guy is facing at any given moment. True. I think that in the, if, you know, believe that we are, we live as I do, that we believe in a random godless universe, nobody and nothing cares about any of it. Um, then for that time that we are here, I think, the important things we live for are um, knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge and understanding and information, and that's why we read and study um, and try and understand the world and other people around us. I think we live for, um, in one word, love, which is to say connections with other people, mm-hmm. I think are abundantly important, family and friends. Um, and all the social science increasingly shows that that is a key element of satisfaction in you know in the course of long lives. And I think the other thing, and I raise my children to believe this, is the importance of um, experience. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in being open to new experience. I always taught my kids if someone brings you, offers you an experience you've never had before. As long as it doesn't prevent, as long as it doesn't present um, a significant risk of serious harm uh, to yourself or your loved ones, other than physical harm, um, other than that, then the correct answer is always yes. It's not ten questions first. Oh, what is this? Oh, what are you giving to me before I taste it? What, what's in that? Um, how how do we get there? What do we you know? It's not the correct answer is not you know twenty questions. The correct <laughs> answer is yes, right. and then you find the rest out later. And I because nobody's gonna pay tribute to you at the end of your days for all the things you said no to, and you're never gonna sit in your deathbed and uh, dream of all the things you didn't do or if you did or if you do end up in that situation you're going to regret it right you know so the things that that enrich our lives are connections and learning and experience and i'm always looking um you know towards the next one to make sure that i keep that appetite alive and there's an aspect of performance that's really all of those things, isn't it? Because sure. we are constant students in magic. Right. We're constant students. I've been in magic more years than I care to say, and the books keep coming. You know, every week there's, you know, my I finally ended up with the right life partner because my right. partner Anne, when the when the Amazon fairy drops off a box, she comes in and she goes, "Honey, it's another book," and she always you know, gives me a smile and says, oh, it's found a good home. And like, that's the person I've been waiting for my whole life. 
um, to appreciate that. So we're co- I'm a constant student, and magic and performance is a constant connection with new people. Just every time I work the castle, I'm always meeting and having great conversations with new people in the sure. bar after the show. And that new experience, because the thing about magic is when you're doing those, as Goshman said, the old tricks for new audiences, the new audiences make it different every time. Mm-hmm. And that adds to your experience. I did a show, you, you heard Michael Albright yes. talking to me about a show that happened the other night mm-hmm. that was absolutely unprecedented. And I've done that set 10,000 times, and I had a guy at the table who was just completely unlike any human I'd ever met in my <laughs> life, and that show was completely off the hook and insane. And uh, you never know what's going to happen in that next performance. So, uh-huh. I, so I think all of that is involved in one's life as a, as a magician and a mystery performer. Wow. Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just say yes. Yeah. That's right. That's, That's right. exactly right. Just say yes. Yeah. And then Jamie. find out what's going to happen. Uh, they had one thing to that yeah. which uh, just pops into my head, that in a very old Penn and Teller piece, one that they haven't revived much, they only revived it once, I think, in Vegas, but it came from the original show. You know, I worked with them for many, many years. Uh, original show, and, the, and the, set, the piece on the program was called How We Met. But backstage, it was referred to as Cuff to a Creep. And it was this kind of almost Albee-esque playlet of Penn and Teller encountering each other. Teller is sitting on a park bench, and Penn walks by, and they have this encounter. Mm -hmm. And at one particular, and Penn sits down, he's very noisy and singing to himself, and Teller's completely quiet. He's wearing aviator sunglasses, he has his arms folded. And Penn is very energetic and over the top and talky, and he can't get the guy to respond to him. So he goes, okay, well, obviously you have your own issues, so I'll just be moving along here. And he stands up, and he suddenly discovers he's, they're handcuffed together, mm-hmm. which is completely shocking to everyone. Right. And there's this wonderful moment where Penn says, he looks at it, he goes, this is great. This is terrific. What is this? I think that's a great way to live life. Wow. This is amazing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jamie. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for your words. Thanks Thank for you. having me, Scott. Thanks for your friendship. I Thanks really enjoyed lot. this. Looking forward to many more years. Thank you very much. <laughs> so with the Magic Word Podcast, that was Jamie in Swiss. This is Scotty out. Wow. Thank you very much, Jamie. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I like listening to what you had to say there. It was like reading one of your books, or perhaps one that might be coming up soon. (laughs) Who knows? Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your friendship and for sharing your time with not only me, but also with the rest of the listeners here this week on the Magic Word Podcast. I want to remind everybody, by the way, if you have not signed up for the pod letter, please do so. When you go to themagicwordpodcast.com, you'll see a link there or perhaps a pop-up that will say subscribe to our pod letter, which is nothing more than really just a weekly newsletter, essentially, but I call it a pod letter. It's a word I coined that will allow you to know who's coming up from week to week and who's coming up the following week and also some suggestions from the archives. And when we occasionally have some sort of a contest, then you will be the first to know about that, to know where you can make sure to enter that contest. So please do that. Also, one last thing, you can really help our podcast grow if you will just give us a five-star comment uh, on iTunes or perhaps whatever other platform you use in order to listen to podcasts. It'd be greatly appreciated. 
So until next week, stay well, get booked, and remember to live for knowledge, understanding, love, and experiences. And in that regard, always remember to just say yes. This is Scotty out.